When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Inside Syracuse Basketball with Mike Waters, presented by Syracuse.com. College basketball is a great thing. Anything can happen. Welcome to the Inside Syracuse Basketball podcast. I'm Mike Waters. Today, former Syracuse basketball star Atan Thomas joins the pod. Thomas played at Syracuse from 1996 to 2000 and still holds the school record for block shots. He went on to play in the NBA for 10 years. Now an author and political commentator, Thomas has his own show on Twitch and is a frequent guest on national television and radio shows. Listen in as Atan and I discuss a wide range of topics. Atan, how are you? I'm doing all right. How are you doing? Well, we're all hanging in there. You know, we're all trying to. How about yourself? The same, hanging in there, you know, just, just me and my family, um, you know, we're, we're in Maryland and we're still pretty much quarantined, so we're not really one of the people trying to move around too much, so it's just uh, watching the numbers and, you know, along with all the, all the rest of America. Yeah, I know. Uh, we're all trying to do the right thing and, and yeah. beat the virus, and uh, I know both you and I share, you know, a love for basketball, and we're, we're hoping mm-hmm. we can uh, keep the virus at a, at a point where we can actually have some college basketball this season. Right, I know. Um, it's it's tough. I gotta be honest with you. It's tough. I mean, I it, it's it's interesting even looking at high school because you know my son's in high school now, and my daughter has played. You know, ball. My, we have we have uh, sports kids. You know, me and my wife Nicole. You know, Nicole went, played ball at Syracuse, so our kids are tall. They're athletic. They've been playing sports all their lives. But we had to make a, a tough decision this fall and keep them out of youth sports. Um, just didn't feel comfortable with everything. And my son plays soccer right before the basketball season every year. He loves soccer. And now is when he plays, and he couldn't. Um, so it's just, you know, it's, it's, it's tough. But you're, you're, you want to make the best decision for your children to be safe, and as much as we love sports. So we've just been working out with them in the basement and, you know, outside the backyard and we've been having some tough workouts but that's that's what we've had to do and, and malcolm is your son right yes. he's a freshman in high school and freshman he was supposed school. to go to dematha this year yeah no he's at dematha um they're virtual learning okay um distance learning so he's he's kind of going he doesn't feel like he's going really but he has to put on his uniform and sit in front of his laptop so you know he's like but it's not the same but <laughs> i'm like hey you just gotta roll with what what it is right now so he's 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 excited, but also he's excited, but also frustrated that he can't actually go. Right, I bet. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny that your son is now in high school because you and I go back to when you were in high school. Isn't it crazy? It means I'm getting old. One of us are getting old. Not me. Not you. All right, Not I'll you. say I'm getting old. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, but Booker T. Washington High School in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Yeah. And back then, the first time I ever heard of you, uh, you were going by Derek. Derek, yeah, yeah. And that was always, it was always an interesting story with that because 
my my name wasn't even Derek. It was Diedrich. And people, with a D. Yeah. With a D, right. And people started calling me Derek. This was back when I was about in eighth grade. And uh, eighth grade, ninth grade. And, you know, we were watching the Fab Five. And so we all was ball head. And you know what I mean? We all had swagger and stuff like that. And then um, I was at Ar Arkansas Razorback camp. And the guys all there said, I reminded them of Derek Coleman. And then it just kind of stuck, honestly. It just made everybody kept calling me Derek. And then in high school, and they kept, and it just kind of stuck. And then so when I was about to go to Syracuse, my uh, family, they're all from New York, they're like, so what's with this Derek thing? Because they never, they all called me a ton. And, and I was like, uh, you know, I told them a story. And I was like, eh, yeah, let's, let's go back to what your real name is. And then that's what, that's what happened. <laughs> that's, that's awesome. Um, <laughs> You know what else I remember was um, your your coach Nate Harris in high school, right? right? Uh -huh. He uh, he was trying to get people interested. He knew he was at schools. He was trying. He was contacting coaches, and yeah. he contacted both Syracuse, yeah, and Georgetown and Georgetown. So it was right after my freshman year. So Syracuse was, you know, my my whole career. I always had to be patient and wait. So my freshman year, I had to wait. And we had a you know um, great. Big man, great team, great seniors and juniors ahead of me my freshman year. So I didn't play at all. But, um, you know, Coach Harris saw that, okay, your time is, is ready. Because we had a lot of people, and some people transferred out because they either didn't make varsity or, you know, but they were really talented. We just had a lot of talent in Booker T. So he was asking me where I want to go to school. And I was like, well, I know I want to go to the Big East. And my, my, my two top teams are, you know, Syracuse and Georgetown. Um, you know, in St. John's of school. And then he was said, okay, well, let's uh, come to my office. And he sat down, he called both Syracuse and Georgetown. Um, and he talked to Coach Mayheim. And it was funny because he talked to Coach Mayheim. And now remember, I hadn't played any my freshman year. I think, I think I got it for a half a second, one game. So he was like, um, I got this kid and I want you to really um, keep your eye on him. And I think he'll be a great prospect for you. So Coach Mayhem was like, okay, well, who's recruiting him now? He was like, no, nobody's recruiting him now. He was like, okay, well, how many points did he have? What was his averages last year? He was like, no, he didn't really play that much last year. He was like, well, what am I missing, Coach? <laughs> he was like, I'm just telling you to keep your eye on him, and you're going to hear about him soon. Not now, but soon you will definitely hear about him. And he said, he said okay, uh, I definitely will. And so I'm glad he made that call and put me on Coach Bayon's radar. Now, the first time Coach Bayheim actually saw you, I think, was at the Nike camp in Indiana. Nike, yeah, I was at Nike camp, and it was funny because I was I was on the same team with Mateen Cleaves, and me and him really bonded. And he was trying to get me to go to Michigan State with him, and he was like, you know, hey man, we could be really good, like, cause we was we was killing at Nike camp. We just had like a rhythm, and you know, I would set a pick for him, and he'd be wide open, and he would roll. We was just we was just rolling, right? And I was like, eh, no. Nah. But then I remember I saw, you know, Coach Beheim there. And then they, you know, then it kind of, the whole recruiting process started from there. But I, I always knew where I wanted to go. I knew I wanted to go to the Big East. And I always wanted to go to my schools were, you know, Syracuse, Georgetown, uh, St. John's. And that's, that was really the extent of my list, <laughs> to be honest with you. Well, and it obviously worked out on the court. You know, mm -hmm. you had a great career here. Uh, you know, your senior season, Team 2000, was a great team. Uh, 
I won't even mention that you lost to Mateen Cleaves in Michigan. I know, I know. And we talked about that. And we talked about it in the hotel after and in the draft. We oh. talked, I mean, because we stayed cool. But yeah. in the in that, you know what? I still haven't watched that game. I still Don't. haven't watched it because we we were up. And then it's just like Mateen and Maurice uh Peterson just took over and they just figured out the zone. And they they would drive and penetrate. And then when you have two guys that got hot, they get hot with the zone and you drive and kick, you know, or you swing from one side to the next, that's like a zone killer. And they just figured it out. <laughs> and they was just, it just was working. I was like, ah. And they said, he said he, they thought the game was over. And they said, all the, I guess, analysts and everybody said, whoever won that game was going to win it all. Like that's what that was like the consensus, and sure enough, they went on and won it all. But yeah, I haven't watched that game. <laughs> on the other side, though, your Syracuse mm. career off the court, mm. pretty successful too. You mentioned earlier you met your wife Nicole at SU, right? Can you yeah. take me through that love story, how you guys met, and how you how you courted Nicole? So crazy that was like it was really freshman orientation when we first met. It was so early, like we hadn't even. Wow, like, really? really? Yeah, it was early, early, and it was just like we just met and we just vibed, and it was funny because we talked a little bit, and then afterwards, like Coach Orr said, "Hey, I got somebody I want you to meet," and I was like, "Okay," and turned around, and it was Nicole, and then so so her coaches was like, you know, there's this guy on the freshman team I think you should meet. And it turned around, and it was me. And it was just, it's like kept happening, stuff like that. And, and then we just kind of vibed, and, you know, we were talking. And I remember October 15th was the day, because that was our first official practice. That's the first official practice day. So that's when I um, officially asked her to, to be my girlfriend, for us to go steady. And, um, <laughs> and she, said, she said yes, and We've been together ever since. Now we, you know, married, three, three wonderful kids, and, uh, you know, it was a blessing. That's fantastic. You know, something else, and we're, this, this will help us move the conversation more towards today. Mm -hmm. But I remember when you were an undergrad at Syracuse, mm -hmm. you didn't stay in the bubble. You were interested in things going on in the outside world, and you used to leave the, the campus and stuff. Yeah. And, was, was that where, like, you know, the, the first signs of current day a ton that, that we were seeing then as you were getting out? I think I remember you going to, like, local groups and local churches. Mm -hmm. So I went to, um, I went, you know, I went to church with Coach Orr. We went to a church, like, right close, a little bit out uh, from, um, from Syracuse, and that's where we always went. And then I, went, I worked with some different groups of youth groups, and I was doing um, programs with them with um, getting them to, to learn how to express themselves through poetry and spoken word. And so they were always so surprised that this basketball player that they see on TV throwing elbows at everybody and being all ferocious is into poetry. So that was always like a hook that would just worked. Mm -hmm. And I just kind of kept doing it. So really my, my, my last two years, a little bit my sophomore year, but really my last two years, I really did that a lot in the community and you know had some great programs there and it was it was you know it was great so i i think i just continued doing that um you know after syracuse once i got into the league and everything like that uh put out a poetry uh book put out another book that i did with young people um as well because i continued that same work um called voice of the future so it's just something that i that i, that I was into 
You know, I tell people all the time, if you want to get a glimpse about who Aton Thomas really is, you glossed over it there. Mm-hmm. The, the book of poetry, More Than an Athlete. Mm-hmm. That was the title, right? I got that right? Right, More Than an okay. Athlete. The book mm-hmm. of poetry you put out, and you put this book out when you were still in the NBA. Mm-hmm. And I think that book of poetry says so much about who you are um, and, and also what you've become 15 years since putting that book out. Right. What was that like putting a book of poetry out while you were still in the NBA? Well, I remember I was with the Wizards and everybody was kind of like, you know, but the same thing at Syracuse. Everybody was like, poetry? Like, what, what do you mean? <laughs> and I was like, well, I was like, all right, well, just come out to a poetry set or come out to something and then you can see. Yeah. So some what of the guys Gilbert Arenas out. think of that, right? <laughs> no, I mean, hey, we, me and Gilbert talked about it all the time. Like okay. me and Gilbert talked about politics. Oh, we still do. You still, you know, it's, it's, it's something where it's it, it might be a little bit different conversation what that some guys are used to having, mm-hmm. but you know it it opens them up to a different conversation if you, and it just becomes the norm. So guys will come out to my poetry events, or guys will come out to you know something, and they were like, oh, "Okay, yeah, that's pretty cool," you know, or and or I'd involve them. I did a lot of work with the um, like under eighteen youth who were incarcerated. And I did programs with there in D.C. prison. And the same thing that I did in, in um, Syracuse, where I, where I had poetry workshops with them there, and they're teaching them how to, you know, express themselves and do poetry and spoke word and stuff like that. So I took some guys with me to that. I remember Laurent Proper went, and at first he was like, uh, so you're going to try to get these guys to do poetry? I'm like, listen, you got to just see it. It's, it it's, it's, it's dope, I promise you. He was like, all right, we'll check it out. And he went there, and he just loved it. He was like, oh, the way they're expressing themselves, the way that they're, you know, and stuff like that. And it's just, it's, like I said, it's something that I've just always been passionate about. So it's, you know, it's my passion. You know, in recent years, mm-hmm. we've heard a very unfortunate phrase, shut up and dribble. Yeah. The title of that book, More Than an Athlete, right. was an answer to shut up and dribble before shut up and dribble came along. I mean, right. Uh, right. <laughs> so I'm sure your reaction to shut up and dribble was, well, I don't know what your reaction was. What, 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 is, what is the reaction to shut up and dribble more than well, an athlete author? Well, it, it's, it's not new. Um, I, you know, I heard that back in high school. In high school at Booker T. Washington, I was um, in speech and debate. That was, my, that was my interest as well. And so while we were, one, we were winning back-to-back you know, state championships in basketball, we were also winning state championships in speech and debate. And so I, I would do, I would touch on different topics and I would get a little bit more recognition about it because I played basketball. Mm. So um, there was one in particular one where I talked about, it was after I had an incident with the police where the police stopped me and they thought that they had recognized me from a mugshot. And you know, there's something that they used to do back in the day, uh, back like in the nineties, whenever they would stop, especially black males, they would have you get out of the car and sit on the ground. Um, and that was just like a routine. Like you knew it was coming. You'd have to get out the car and sit on the ground. So I was sitting on the ground. I remember it. I was on my way to play Central High School, one of our biggest rivalries. And I was sitting on the ground for like 45 minutes. You know, I, I was young, 16 years old, sitting there, you know, and there's like, you know, three different police cars and they all have their lights going and everything. Everybody's passing by, looking at me and they're, you know, I hear them talking. And they're like, no, he looks familiar. Keep searching, keep checking his stuff. Keep, you know, everything like that. Well, I've seen him before. And then, you know, after 45 minutes and they looked at my trunk, which they weren't even supposed to do, but, you know, 16 years old, you don't know, you know what I mean? So they say, you know, can we pop the trunk? 
And all right, I, you know, what am I, what am I going to tell them? No, you know, what I mean? what, I'm going to argue with them. So they popped the trunk and they, and they held up my Booker T. Washington bag. And they said, oh, he plays for Booker T. That's how, that's how we know him. And then they just all got in their cars and left and said, stay out of trouble. So I was so upset by that. And I made that topic my original oratory. Original oratory is when you make up your own speech okay. um, with speech and debate. So I made that my original oratory and I started winning a lot. And, you know, national, nationally, I went, I took that speech to Harvard, you know, like literally a lot. And I got a lot of attention from it. And the, the Tulsa World wrote an article about me. And the title of the article was More Than an Athlete. Ah. And so that's where that came about. And so, and a lot of people from that um, around, they were like, hey, thanks a lot for saying that. Thanks for speaking up. And, you know, because we, it happens all the time. And, Nobody listens to us. And so that's where the light bulb came. I was like, oh, so just because I play basketball, that's the only reason why they're listening to me. And then that's like what I just continued doing throughout my entire career. So that was like the, the birth of me using my platform and speaking out uh, the way that I do now. You know, we mentioned shut up and dribble. Mm -hmm. You know, Black Lives Matter became a phrase this year mm -hmm. with, uh, after the deaths of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. Right. Um, the NBA, you know, had to have its playoffs in a bubble. Mm -hmm. I thought it was really interesting how the Black Lives Matter thing in that bubble uh, became, you know, such a, a big deal. And right. it seemed to me like more and more athletes were finding their voices mm -hmm. and realizing that they, you know, can make some difference. Uh, what, what was your impression of that whole uh, the Black Lives Matter this this past year, and, and also, you know, what was going on in the NBA bubble? Well, I was definitely impressed by what was going on and proud of the way that athletes were using their voices um, in the NBA. But I was also proud of, of my alma mater, Syracuse. Um, I had Buddy on um, a, a lot of different programs. We were on a few programs after that, you know, after that happened. Yes. And I, I just recently interviewed um, Coach Bayheim and Buddy and we talked about that and we talked about, you know, how Buddy could be an ally and his feelings about it. And I talked about the, the video that they did, um, No Excuse, that they, that they um, connected with Carmelo Anthony and they did that video. And I asked Coach Beheim, you know, what made you want to do that video? You know what I mean? I mean, because a lot of people, you could have just put out a statement and said Black Lives Matter or, you know, George Floyd was wrong, but you went a step further. And he said, you know, he went into detail about how important it is to be able to recognize that everybody's life has purpose and everybody's life is important. And, and being able to understand how sometimes things that are going on in society tells people that their life isn't important, you know? And, and, and as an ally, how important it is for, for you to recognize that and be able to say that it's wrong, even if it's not your reality. And so Buddy was talking about that aspect, and I'll just, you know, it, it, it was it, for, for to see your alma mater stand up and make a statement like that, um, in particular, it, I, was, I was proud. You know, and I, I'll say honestly, I, I was proud of the way that they, because not all universities did that. You know, some, a lot of colleges were real quiet around that time, you know, even to say, and, and it, there comes a point when, you know, I think, you know, Dr. King said that, that silence becomes betrayal. And when there's something as drastic as something that happens like George Floyd and, you know, everybody was quarantined and everybody saw it and it was so vicious and cruel 
and then just not to be moved to say anything, especially when you're dealing particularly with black players. You know what I mean? It, it's, yeah. it's, I think there's a responsibility to be able to, you know, stand up and, and say that this is wrong, you know, whether you're Coach Beheim or Coach K at Duke or, you know what I mean? So I, I was proud at, of Syracuse for being that example for um, other universities all across the country. You know, it was about a year ago this time mm -hmm. when you know, some of the social issues really came uh, here right to the Syracuse University campus. Mm -hmm. There was the Not Again uh, SU movement with a lot of uh, students up here who were upset at the administration's response right. to some racist and anti-Semitic, mm -hmm. uh, you know, acts on campus. Uh, you spoke with some of those students that were involved with, you know, Not Again SU. Yeah. Uh, you know, what was your opinion of everything going on at the time and then and and some of the things the students were doing? So last year, and this was the last time I actually traveled. Um, I went with my son, Malcolm, to um, John Wallace's retirement ceremony. Sure. So that was right. So that was February. Mm -hmm. Right. The end of February. So we went there and that was in the middle of when everything was going on with Not Again SU. And they were still protesting um, and doing sit-ins. And well, it, it was the, the school of management when I was there. I don't know what it's called now because it's not the school of management anymore. It's a different building. But um, that's the building that, that it was in. So, so I did a, a roundtable discussion with them at that building, which is the old school of management. And I brought my son with me. And so it was only supposed to be like really 45 minutes. Um, but it ended up being like two and a half, almost three hours. And we were wow. just sitting there talking with them, listening to them, mostly listening. Mm -hmm. And they were just, you know, telling us everything that was going on and the, you know, all the different racial incidents that happened. And it sounded like, sounded like the movie Higher Learning. I don't know if you remember that movie back in the day, but it was, it's like, wait a minute, this, this happened, all this happened, you know, like last semester, <laughs> you know, like that was, it was just like crazy stuff, like a swastika being spray paint on the wall, you know, a, a white supremacist manifesto emailed to students, you know, there was all this crazy stuff happening, the N-word spray painted in the dorms, like all of this stuff. So um, they were talking about not feeling safe. Yep. And that was the part that really, you know, I, I, I left that meeting with them, you know, because uh, like, like I said before, you know, me and my wife both were, were Syracuse alumni, proud alumni. And, you know, we, you don't want to necessarily, you know, decide where your kids are going to school, but you want to get them a little nudge, you know what I mean? But, but, and so our kids grew up inundated with Syracuse all over the place, you know what I mean? And, but I left there and, you know, Malcolm asked me, why did they keep saying that they were not safe? Like, you know, and I was like, ah, I don't, that, that part stuck with me too. So I left there like, ah, I don't, I want Malcolm to come here and, and deal with all of this after seeing the, the kids, you know, and, and we had, that. there was other guys coming in during the town hall. There was a few athletes that came in and peeked their head in, a few, um, you know, fraternities that came in. There was a lot of people and they didn't disagree with anything that was being said. Mm -hmm. And it was the relationship within the relationship with them and DPS changed into something else. And it was just a terrible description. And I was like, what, you know, the, the fact that all of this is going on at, at my alma mater, you know, it, it hurt. So it was great when Brian Tarrant um, called me and said, you know, I'm formulating this group called Black Oranges. 
which was my next question. That was your next question? Okay. It's a a former, um, you know, Syracuse alumni athletes, uh, black athletes, and we're going to try to use our um, collective power to make a difference. And Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, I'm all in. Like, you can stop right there. You don't have to do any more pitching to me. I'm all in. And so he's like, great. We're trying to, you know, build a roster of people, and we're really going to try to do a lot of things. And so we have this tremendous amount, you know, and it continues growing. It's over 500 different athletes. And, you know, everybody has their own areas of, of specific concerns. You know, some people want to have more voting. Like D.C. DC wants to do um, increase the, the numbers of black students on campus because he said the numbers dipped so much so when he was there. And, you know, um, Keith Bullock has one thing, and Zara Sims has something else. You know, everybody has different things that they bring to the table. My thing was, you know, really with the students on campus and the Not Again SU students and, you know, specifically, you know, um, trying to improve this relationship. Because that, I was like, we can't have, we can't have black students feeling unsafe on campus. This, come on, this is 2020. This ain't back in the 50s. Like, that, that shouldn't even happen. So one of the things that we did was, we, got a, we did a town hall with Not Again SU students, and that went really well with Black Oranges. And a lot of people got, I wanted them to hear what I heard when I sat through, me and Malcolm was there with the round table with them. Yeah. And then we did a follow-up town hall with um, Chief Maldonado. He's the, um, the, the DPS, DPS chief. And right. it was a good first step. I mean, a lot of positive things came from that. He said that he wanted to you know, continue working with Black oranges to be able to improve, um, you know, the relationship with DPS and, and, and the black students, black and brown students on campus. And we're going over different programs that we can do. And, and, he, and he told us stuff that we didn't know, like there's an um, uh, investigation underway right now. And I was like, oh, okay, well, a lot of people didn't know that. It kind of seemed like you just kind of swept over everything under the rug and just going about like it didn't happen. And he was like, no, he was like, but you know, they're, they're doing a big investigation of it, you know, and, you know, he, he didn't want to say a lot of particulars on it, but he's right. like, but, but we're not letting it go as if everything was done correctly. And I was like, well, that's, that's, that's good. That's a big thing because, you know, a lot of things from not, not again, as you students, they didn't feel that their voices were even being taken seriously. Right. So, you know, a lot, a lot of positive. So it was, it was a great first step. We're going to keep trying to use our, you know, collective, you know, power and our collective voice to continue to make Syracuse better. And we're going we're gonna to keep doing it. On the subject of Syracuse, mm-hmm. a Syracuse grad recently won an election. Nah. <laughs> yes, he did. <laughs> yes, he did. A law school graduate by the name of Joseph Biden. Right. Um, you know, what, and a lot of black voters, especially in like states like Georgia, mm-hmm. were the key to his win. Yes. So in order to pay back, mm-hmm. you know, the black community there and those mm-hmm. that have supported him, what would you like to see Joe Biden do in maybe his first hundred days in office uh, to help uh, the black community? Well, there's, there's, there's a lot. First of all, I think number one, he has to, he has to pay um, first attention to COVID. That's number one on day okay. one. Like that's the number one thing he has to do. Um, but you know, I, there's, there's so much. And I, and I think that in, on his website, he listed a lot of the things that he wants to do, um, you know, in his plan for, for the black community. And he has two plans, two tabs, one for the black community and a plan, a lift every voice plan. And a lot of it has to do with, with, with housing and, and really 
righting the wrongs of the 94 crime bill um, that he authored and, and promoted and, and had a big part of, of um, you know, it being instituted. And that's something that I do feel that he could have been more vocal about mm-hmm. during the campaign. He did address it. I just think that it should have been addressed as soon as he got the nomination because he knows that's the one thing for the black community that we're going back to and saying, wow, looking back at this, you know what I mean? You were really, I mean, the way that he was, hit, the, the, the language that he used, the, and then the components of the bill and then the effects of the bill. So he said it wasn't, you know, it, it was a mistake and he addressed it later on. But now saying it is one thing, now you have to fix it because there's still ramifications of that bill that are still existent right now in, in the justice system. And, you know, I think that's something that he has to definitely um, address. And it, it's, and then he has to go to police reform and being able to have sensible police reform where people are held accountable. And that's the, the issue, the issue with these, you know, and one of the things that's kind of frustrating with the part is, the, the conversation gets shifted to people's reaction to an injustice and not the injustice itself. And you, you're, 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 you know, chastising the reaction, even if it is wrong, even if it isn't the best reaction, even if it isn't, you know, but you're not paying as much attention on what caused the reaction. And I think that's what we, we I think having police reform or police accountability is just better for everyone. I mean, I have family members that are police. I have friends that are police. You know, my, my younger brother, the guys that I knew at Booker T that were young, they're police. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I know police. So it's not saying that all police are bad, but you have to have the system in place that holds everybody accountable. And that's just not what happens right now. There's this immunity that is, you know, sweeping through all police departments where it's so difficult to actually punish a police officer, even if they're found of doing something wrong. And that you can't, you can't, you can't function in a, in, a, in a society where people are not held accountable to have all the power. And I think that's what he has to address. And not just with lip service, you have to be able to put in, you know, um, and, and it's not like there's this, it's, it's so ridiculously, you know, grandiose that you can't, that you can't do it. There's, little things that you just make adjustments. So for instance, if a police officer is involved in a lethal shooting, um, that means that he killed someone in the line of duty, you have an independent um, investigator, an investigation of the situation. You don't have an internal investigation where the police office, the police department investigates themselves and comes back and tells you if they did something wrong or not. You have a completely independent one do. That, that's, that's like a common sense you know, like like I like I have kids, my three kids. If I left it up to them to tell me if they did something wrong, they, they, they would never say. They're like, no, we're good. We didn't do anything wrong. You have to have a, a different set of eyes coming there that are that you know are you know not objected that are objected to it and be able to evaluate everything without any bias. I think that's you know just one quick example of what all police departments should have. Sure. You know, um, the other thing, too, I was going to ask you, because it relates back to your hometown of Tulsa, mm-hmm. it's the education system. Mm. I Obviously, some schools in, in some cities are horribly underfunded. Mm-hmm. 
which negatively impacts generations of, of, of black kids. Of course. Because you, if you don't have an education, you can't compete in this society. Right. But there's an other element to our educational system. Mm-hmm. I consider myself a pretty educated guy. I went to college. I had a good high school education. Okay. I had never in my life, not all the way through college, high school, college, everywhere, I had never heard of the Black Wall Street massacre in Tulsa. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd never yeah, heard yeah. of that. It wasn't until uh, recent years, and, and I'm like, whoa, how did I yeah. miss that? Right. And I you didn't know, miss class. But, but it's not It it's wasn't not in you. my class. Right. It, it's, <laughs> it's not just you. I remember being in Syracuse and being in an African-American studies class. And, you know, it was a big lecture hall, like 200-something people, you know, filled lecture hall. And, um, you know, we, we mentioned it. And oh, really? a lot of people, the, the, the professor mentioned it. I think, I don't know if, I don't know how it was mentioned. I don't. And so many people had never heard of it. And so I'm looking around and I'm like, no, no, no it was an economics class. That's what it was. It was my economics class. Oh, because and, of Black Wall Street. And right, right, right. That's what it was. It was economics class. And I, I mentioned it and nobody had heard about it except for one other person that was from Texas and uh, another person that, that was from like Oklahoma City and the professor. Nobody else had heard about it. And this is a whole lecture. I was like, wait a minute. Y'all don't know what happened? And they were like, we don't have no idea what you're talking about. And I was just like, how is that possible? And the professor said, yeah, we have different types of education. And, and, that, and to your point, that was one of the things that, you know, I think it was, was it Project 1619 or something like that? I don't know. The New York Times. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. they was trying to change the educational system to be able to implement different things that are missed out of the history and out of, you know, because we have a certain type of history um, that is, that is in, in especially in public schools. And so it's important because you're not getting full history, the full story. Now me, since I grew up in Oklahoma, grew up in Tulsa, was literally yeah. 10 minutes from where Black Wall Street was. You know what I mean? So we grew up with that um, history with that from from middle school, from you Carver Middle well School, aware. Booker T. Yes, very well aware. <laughs> so that's why I was so shocked. I was like, "Wait a minute! What do you mean y'all ain't never heard what happened? You, you know, you know nothing. 1921, Black Wall Street, everything that you know, the the racial massacre that y'all ain't never heard none of that. So it's just really recently, I would say, in the last year or two, that nationally people are starting to hear about it, and it's that's that's crazy. I'm going to ask you the, the, the Huxtable family question here. Okay. Before we started the podcast, you and I had, I, I joked with you about Emmanuel Acho, the mm-hmm. NFL player. Mm-hmm. And he's, and he's got a new book coming out, uncomfortable conversations with a black man. Right. And I said, I wanted to have uncomfortable conversations with you. Right. So here's an uncomfortable con- question. The okay. Huxtable family question. Okay. What is it like for you and Nicole Mm-hmm. to raise three black kids mm-hmm. in a privileged environment mm-hmm. because obviously you were so successful in mm-hmm. the NBA. You made mm-hmm. your money. Mm-hmm. Um, so how do you raise those kids in a privileged environment so that they still understand what's going on out there in society and they also understand, you know, their cultural history? So one do you ever worry that, about that? Oh, of course. So one of the things that, you know, we've stressed to them, and this has come up uh, many different times after the uh, killing of a uh, you know unarmed black man by the police mm-hmm. is you know when the police pull you over 
Um, it doesn't matter what your educational level is. It doesn't matter the, the amount of money that you have in your account. It doesn't matter, you know, if you have two parents at home or anything like that. You have to understand that you're in a situation that you're looked at as a threat. And that's a hard lesson to have to teach your kids. And, and it's a lesson that, you know, you've heard of the talk. Yes. And right. And so every time one of these things happen in black families and black households, we have to have the talk again with our children. So Malcolm is 15. That means that he's going to be driving next year. And that frightens me. Like I, I am, you know, it, it, me and Nicole, we're talking about it this summer, you know, after everything, you know, happened, we were watching Jacob Blake, we were watching George Floyd, and we were having a talk with them over and over again. So and I, I, I coached my son's AAU team. Right. So we were, you know, and when you, when you coach AAU and you're, you're the coach, you just end up having to drive people home sometimes. That's just the way that it works. You know what I mean? Sometimes. So, yeah. uh, and I told this story in my book, uh, We Matter, um, we were driving home one time, him and his teammate Kamar, and we were stopped by the police. And it was, you know, I, I, we, we were stopped. And so immediately, uh, it was nighttime, it was at the practice. So I, I turned on the interior lights, I rolled the windows down, I turned the music off, I, I, put, I took off my wallet, put it on the, um, on the dashboard, um, got my you know, insurance stuff and put it on the dashboard. Took my phone out, put it on a record, put it in the cup holder, and put my, my hands at 10 and 2. And then, so they're looking at me like, well, what is all of this that you're doing? You know, because I just automatically go into that mode. The police officer comes, and, you know, I have the, you know, how are you doing, sir? You know, everything all right? You know, yeah, license registration, you know, and okay, sure. And, and when he asked me, I said, okay, my license is on my dashboard. Uh, is it okay if I go and reach for it? And he said, yes. So I slowly reached over for it and then went and picked it up and then slowly took it back to him, right? And when I was doing that, the other officer was shining a flashlight on my hands while I was slowly going. So it, and, and so it turned out that I just had a taillight that was out. And so they just said, you know, you know take care of your taillight and, you know, go ahead. And, but, but afterwards, Malcolm was like, you, you shouldn't have had to do all of that. Like for all that for a taillight? And, and Kamar was like, man, he's treating you like a criminal. Like, why do you have to, you know, go into, I was like, listen, it's not about any of that. You got to understand that the way that I react can be the difference of if we go home safely or we don't. Mm -hmm. And that's the reality that you're dealing with when you're a black man in this country. Nothing else matters. And, and then Kamar was like, yeah, but you ain't no criminal. You, you driving some gets home from, from practice at AAU and you have a family and you do all this good stuff. I was like, Kamar, none of that matters. I was like, you got to listen to me. That does not matter. So what could I have done? Argued with him right there? Escalated the situation? You, when, when you are a black man, you have to de-escalate a situation that you didn't escalate in the first place. And the only reason why it's escalated is because of the color of your skin. Mm -hmm. And that's a hard reality to have to teach your children, but it is a reality. So those talks and those lessons and everything like that, you know, are continuous. I mean, that, I remember talking with my son, uh, with Malcolm after Trayvon Martin, and he was young. And, you know, because if you put a hoodie on Malcolm and he goes out, he looked just like Trayvon Martin. And that was after when Geraldo Rivera said, you know, it was the hoodies and the hoodies are scaring people and everything. Like, I was like, wait a minute. 
You know, me and my son wears hoodies all the time. So it's just, you know, those come and those are the conversations that it's a whole different world for white people because that's not what white people have to worry about. I remember, I remember speaking at Penn State and one of the, the students said, listen, we understand what you're saying. He's like, that's just not our world. Like, we don't know it. And they were like, you know, when we get stopped by the police, we're thinking about, you know, how can we get out of this ticket? And when they said that, all the black people in the audience started laughing. And so the white people were looking at him like, why are y'all laughing? You know, and, and I was like, why don't you tell them why, why you're laughing? And then so one of the you know, young sisters said, that is the last thing we are thinking about when we're stopped by the police is about a ticket or not. And so it's just two different worlds. But that's but 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 what what's been happening, especially this summer, has been an increasing amount of empathy from white people that want to be allies and are able to be able to say, okay, this is not right. You know, the, the two worlds that exist are not right. And it took something like George Floyd happening to open a lot of white people's eyes. Mm -hmm. And I say it all the time, like this this summer, this was probably the the most white people that I have ever seen protesting the death of a black man by the police. Like you would look at some protests and there wouldn't be no black people there. It'd be all white people protesting with Black Lives Matter signs, with whole police accountable signs, all this different stuff. And I've never seen that in my lifetime. So that's something that's Nearby, encouraging. Right, that's something that, that's encouraging. Sure. You know, I, I heard it recently, like the white privilege Mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily mean that your life wasn't hard and you don't have difficulties. Right. It just means that the color of your skin isn't the reason why your life is hard. Exactly. And it, and it has nothing to do with money. Because a lot of times exactly. white people say, right. you know, well, I didn't grow up with money. Right. I'm like, well, that doesn't matter if you grew up with money or not. It's just... That's not it, what it means. Yeah. That's not what it means. <laughs> yeah, because a lot of times people hear privilege and they think, oh, because you have money to buy a car or right. Yeah, no, that's not it. it no, I, and, and it's interesting to see, you know, people kind of begin to understand that. Sorry. Right. So one last question. Okay. Uh, I know you've met Barack Obama before. Mm -hmm. And now with a Syracuse grad uh, headed to the White House, mm -hmm. how soon do we see or hear about your cabinet position? No, I don't know about all that. <laughs> well, you know, I was fortunate to, to be a surrogate for uh, President Obama. And I was part of the fatherhood initiative after I did the fatherhood book and then I was part of my brother's keeper so I did a lot of work with the Obama administration and um, yeah but all that changed after after <laughs> change of office you know it's funny because we went to the Easter egg roll every year and mm -hmm. so my kids it was just regular tradition for them like every year we go to the Easter egg roll right <laughs> so then Trump came in office and it was like you know, my son jumped like, well, I guess no more Easter egg roll for us. And so, but my daughter, baby Sierra, she didn't, she doesn't know ever, ever not going to the Easter uh, egg roll. poor Sierra. Yeah, you know I mean? so, so it was hard for her. She's like, wait a minute, we're not going? And they're like, mm -mm. We, we didn't get invited. <laughs> well, maybe this coming Easter for Sierra's sake. Right. That's what I said. <laughs> Atan, I can't tell you how much of a pleasure it is to see you again and, and, and talk to you. Um, I always feel like I learn a little something. Right. Uh, maybe not learning a fact, uh -huh. but I always feel like maybe I, I learn uh, a feeling or an appreciation. Definitely. That's a good uh, way to say it. And, and that's why I, I, like, I like talking to you. I like listening to you. So. Well, you know, having those conversations is, you know, it's, it's important. 
You know, I mean, we've done, you know, two few times when you came on my show, um, you know, with, with my man Seth, Seth Everett, uh, and we just talked. And we talked about things, having difficult conversations like you talked about, and um, we discussed different things. So I think that's what's important. Well, I appreciate your time. Uh, thank you for coming on the Inside Syracuse Basketball Podcast. And uh, the next time we, uh, we have you on, I promise, We'll talk a lot more basketball because hopefully we have a season ahead of us. Right. And I think Syracuse is going to be better than people think, and that, that should be fun. So Sounds good. Sounds like a plan. Again. Sounds like a plan. I want to thank Katan for joining me on the podcast today, and thanks to you out there as well for listening in. Please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast and follow all of the Syracuse basketball action this season with our complete coverage on Syracuse.com. Until next time on the Inside Syracuse Basketball Podcast, I'm Mike Waters.